0: We're going to be in Genesis 28. Jesus, we thank you for laughter. (laughs) It's a gift. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for songs that remind us of the treasure that we've been given. Thank you for Scripture and the story of how you are reclaiming the broken humans, how you are defeating our greatest enemies, and how you are creating a new kingdom, and how each of us can participate with you, our King, here, today, now. So we ask, Lord, in Genesis 28 that we might see more of your story, and you might be bigger and greater in our eyes. So speak, may we listen. We ask this in your name, amen. So I call Genesis 28 uh, exile. Uh, It's what happens to Jacob, so if you're new... I'll catch you up real quick. There's a couple twins we've been following for a couple weeks. Their names are Esau and Jacob. They're anything but identical. Uh, they're kind of at each other. They're in a very dysfunctional family. Esau, of all of the characters in this family, Esau is my favorite, which tells you how dysfunctional this family is. That's like, what? Right? They're a bad crew. If, if there's reality TV back then, these guys would be the perfect reality TV crew because we like the, the more dysfunction, we like that, right? That's what makes a good story. We like the nanny to go into the house where the five-year-old is cussing and chain smoking. We're like, good luck with that. What are you gonna do there? That's what we want. Well, this is, this, this is who they are. It's must-see TV, if you would. And the big story is this. Genesis breaks into two chunks, chapters one through 11 all nations. From chapter 12 on, God grabs a guy named Abraham and says, listen, Abraham, and he's not that good of a guy. Listen, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. I'm going to do something with you and with your kids that eventually is going to bring a blessing upon all the world. But what we see continually in Genesis is that promise, the covenant promise to Abraham is in constant jeopardy, right? First, he doesn't have kids. That's in jeopardy. Then he lies about his wife. She gets taken into a harem. Now it's in more jeopardy. Then he sleeps with a lady named Hagar. That's in more, it just keeps, it's like the continual promise of God to bring about the blessing to all nations. The people that are supposed to be doing it, they're just always putting his promises in jeopardy. And it's no different right here. And the big problem now is this dysfunctional family and Jacob has some serious character problems. He's deceitful, he's a liar, he's a schemer. He's just a bad dude. So that all this is kind of in jeopardy. And if you're reading the story for the first time, you'd be like, oh no, what's going to happen? So this is must read Bible, right? <laughs> so let's jump in, chapter 28, verse one. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Different life goal between the people of God and the Canaanites. They didn't believe in the same God. They didn't have the same end. They didn't have the same belief system. Arise, go to Pandan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, And take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. I just call this goodbye. Goodbye, Jacob. So you know what's happened so far. Esau, because of the betrayal and the deceit and the lying of Jacob, he's so mad, He wants to murder his brother. Rebecca, the mom, sees this problem between her boys. So she hatches a plan to get Jacob out of Beersheba and away from danger. But the way she does it is so interesting. She goes to her husband. It's the end of chapter 27. And she says this to Isaac. She says, it would just kill me if Jacob marries A Hittite hottie like Esau has done. It's gonna kill me. So then Isaac's like, "Yeah, okay. Well, I got an idea. Let's send him away to your brother." And Rebecca's like, "That is a great idea, Isaac." She doesn't mention the lie or the deceit or the murder plan of Esau. Rebecca makes it seem like it's Isaac's idea. He's so she she's a sharp woman. You do not mess with Rebecca. She's the mama bear. She's like controlling this whole situation. So she gets Isaac on the team. Okay, we're sending him away. And so Isaac says this to Jacob, don't marry a Canaanite woman. Now, depending on what the genealogy you look at, Jacob is anywhere between 40 years old and 70 years years old at this time. Now they lived a lot longer, no doubt. So he's mid age or so, somewhere in that kind of range. 70 years old, 40 years old, whatever it is. And he's still obeying his dad. What do you think about that? I think it's awesome. (laughs) In Rome, throughout when the Roman empire was on, A son had to, by law, a son had to obey his father as long as his father was alive. Isn't that just such a different culture than us today? Right? Son, be home by nine. But dad, I'm 48. I don't care. Be home by nine. right? All right, dad, okay. Or we'll get arrested. I'll send the cops for you. Like, just what a different culture we live in now. And I think this is actually the first time Isaac has told his son, Jacob, don't marry the Canaanites. They're a different kind of crew. Uh, They offer their kids as sacrifice. They don't believe in Yahweh. Don't don't marry into that. Their religion is different than ours. I think it's the first time, because if you look down at verse six, we're gonna read about Esau. Esau learns for the first time, what? I'm not supposed to marry the Canaanites? Oh, no. No. So Jacob's 70 years old or 40 years old. This is the first time Isaac's ever told him, hey, don't do that. Isn't that a bummer? Because Deuteronomy 6 says this, that we as dads are supposed to be, wherever we're going, whatever we're doing, we're supposed to be instilling into our kids an understanding of Jesus, an understanding of Yahweh, theology, talking about it all the time. But it appears Isaac has been so passive that he's never passed on his faith to his son, Jacob. In fact, if you remember back to chapter 27, when Jacob goes in dressed up like Esau to deceive his dad and get the blessing, and Isaac's like, dude, how did you get game so fast? His answer is, Yahweh, your God, help me. Jacob is not a believer at 40 or 50 or 60 years old. He doesn't believe in Yahweh. Yahweh, your God, help me get it. It doesn't say my God, Yahweh, your God. It saddens me. Listen, dads, it's never too late and it's never too early to begin to share the good news, the gospel with your children. It should be just mixed in. Well, how do I do that? I think here's how. Uh, a while back, I went to the pregnancy care center. They asked me to just come in and share some thoughts with the folks there. Awesome work they do. So I went in and I shared. Um, and then I had a question and answer time. And the, question, the first question I got was this. Okay, we have girls come in here and they're in here because they're pregnant and, and they're trying to decide what they're gonna do with their pregnancy. And, and we have kind of a thing that we wanna do with them, but it's, it's not, we're not high pressure and, they, and she said, how do we transition from helping them make a decision about their baby? How do we transition from that to then Jesus? Because it always feels awkward and weird. And what I shared was this. I said, well, if you talk to me for any length of time, you're gonna hear about my wife and then you are gonna start hearing about my kids. You know why? Because they're really important to me. And it's not going to be weird. It's going to be very natural. Oh man, that, oh, you should, right? I said, the same thing should happen with Jesus. That because Jesus is really important to us and because of what He's done with us, and as a follower of Jesus, it should just be coming out of us. It should just be oozing out. So I have this saying, if you squeeze an orange, what do you get out? If you squeeze a Christian, what should you get out? Christ, Right? That's what should be happening. When, we, when we're in situations, Jesus should just be coming. It should be natural because that's, he's that important to us. And when we're with our family, when we get squeezed, when things are squeezing us, man, I keep praying what comes out of Jesus. Grace, his mercy, his goodness, because that's, that's what my kids will remember. Isaac, though, doesn't seem to do it. And when he blesses, I, I found the blessing really funny. Because notice who is the agent of blessing. Verse three, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Verse four, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you. God's gonna do it. And I think Isaac is saying, I'm not doing it. I think personally, Isaac is still sore about the lie and the deceit And he's like, you know what? Fine. Jacob, you're on your own now. Because Jacob is sent off without any servants, without a caravan, without anything to go find a wife. If you remember back to Genesis 24, when a wife is gotten from the same spot for Isaac, 10 camels are sent. A bunch of servants are sent. Gold and money and all this cash is sent to go get a wife for Isaac. But now that it's Jacob's turn, hey, buddy, you're on your, lo- you're, you're on your own. You got to trust God. And part of me likes that. I was reading about Bill Gates a couple of years ago. What he's going to do with his, he's, got, he's worth $89 billion and he's been trying to give away his money like he's been giving away all this money and he just keeps getting more and more and more money. Like in 10 years, he went from like 50 billion to 89 billion and he's given away billions and billions of dollars. He can't give it away faster. Do you know if Bill Gates saw $100 bill on the ground, he would waste money if he stooped down and picked it up. That's how fast money comes into his life. He's like, all right, let's take too much time. I'm not picking that up. And he was talking about, okay, what are you gonna do with all this money and your kids? And he goes, I'm not giving it to my kids. He goes, because if I did... I would ruin them and ruin their path. Mark Zuckerberg, who's worth $65 billion has said the same thing. I'm not giving it any to my kids. They're gonna have to find their own way because it's so healthy for them to do that. And I thought that's probably really true because a number of years ago, I watched a documentary. You can get it, it's called Rich Kids. It's a little vulgar because rich kids can be a little vulgar. And that's the main, <laughs> I think the point of the entire documentary is like, hey, these kids are just jacked up. But there was one story I loved, and it's all old money. It's like Johnson and Johnson. It's like the Vanderbilts, just old money. And this one family, they had a son. They sent him to an Ivy League college. He didn't deserve to be there, but it's money. So you get in with money. So he's at this school just partying, just being a bonehead. And the dad just said, that's it. Pulled the son, and he's just silver spoon his whole life. Pulled him out of school, sent him to Texas to work on a farm, with migrant workers for minimum wage. And this son, that that was years before this, the son said that was the best thing ever. To this day, this son has a job making $40,000 a year, even though he gets an allowance of $1 million a year. He goes, "The, the job, they don't need me. I need the job. It's healthy for me to make my own way. So in a way, I think, hey, Isaac's, Isaac's got it here. You know what, Jacob? For you and your character, who you are, you gotta go on your own. And I'm trusting God in you. And I think every parent at some point in your life, you have to do that with your kids. have hey, done all I can do for you now. Now you gotta make your own way. Now I'm trusting God in you at this point. He's gotta bless you. He's gotta walk you with you. He's gotta do this. So in chapter 27, it seems like Jacob gets away with it. His lie, his deceit, all this stuff. But what we're gonna see in chapter 28 is this. He has been thrust from the nest. He's feathering. He thought, man, I got it all. I got the birthright and I got the blessing. Nope. You're in fact gonna be sent away penniless. And this is gonna be a theme in scripture. And uh, Moses puts it like this. Paul does it as well, but Moses puts it like this. He says, be sure your sins will find you out. It's Numbers 32, 23. Be sure, if you're gonna be sure of something, Moses would say this, your sins, not God getting you, just the way the world is shaped, like physics, like gravity, be sure of this. Your sins will find you out. Paul puts it like this, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the spirit, you reap life everlasting. If you sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. It's just the natural way of things. And we're gonna see this happen to Jacob. I say sin is a lot like a tire. I've used this before. Do you know you cannot bury a tire? You can try, but a tire is less dense than earth. And so slowly but surely it expands and contracts year after year after year. And slowly it just kind of moves its way up. And eventually one day it pops out of the ground. And like I'd used that many times. And then one spring, a couple of years ago, I looked out of my field and there was this tire in the middle of my field. I was like, that's so awesome. It's true. Like a giant blackhead, there it is. It works. <laughs> that's sin. We can think, man, I buried it. I'm good. Oh, I got away with it. And then five years down the road, boom. 10 years down the road, boom. Oh, what a bummer. It's one of the reasons why you just don't sin. You just stay away from it. I want to plant good seed. So each year I'm reaping good fruit. That's what I want to do. Jacob, he's got a hard road ahead. And we'll see that really to the very end of Genesis. He reaps his character all the way through this book. Hmm. Now back to Esau really quick, picking up him. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Pandanaram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Pandanaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had. That's a very important phrase in there. Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. I just call this little thing, don't, don't Esau. Buddy, you read about Esau, and part of me is like, I just want to give him a hug. Like, buddy, how far have you fallen right now? You had the birthright... You had the blessing, you're your dad's favorite son. You lost the birthright for a bowl of soup. You cheated out of your blessing. Your mom conspired against you. Now you just learned that your dad doesn't like your two wives. Gonna make all the holidays awkward now, right? Like, oh, great, right? So Esau's just trying to figure out like, what do I do now? And, and, and I, I think his thought process went like this. Okay, so Jacob's gonna go marry into my mom's family, because he's mom's favorite. I'll marry into my dad's family. Because grandpa Abe had a son named Ishmael and he's the half brother of my dad. So I'm gonna marry into his side. And all he does is make things worse, right? We'll see what multiple wives do to Jacob. It's not a pretty picture. All he does is make things worse. And the sad part about it to me is this, is Isaac is not doing what dad should be doing. He's not directing his kids. He's not explaining to them how to live life right, right? So Esau is essentially hearing this message through the tent, trying to assimilate, and trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now? That's not the way to do things. The New Testament says this about the way that we're actually supposed to relate to each other in these kinds of issues. It says that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. Now we know something that's true, that we're supposed to go and grab somebody and speak the truth in love. Most people are usually good at one of those three things. Some people are really good at speaking, but they don't say a lot. You're just like, what are you talking about? Some people are really good at truth, but man, there's no love in it. It just feels like you got punched in the mouth. And some people are really good at just love, or it just feels like you're always getting a hug, but it's not really helping you. What we're supposed to be is all three of these, speak the truth, in love. But I'll tell you, I don't think we do it very often. I don't think when we see somebody like an Esau in the middle of some bad situation, very few of us actually go to that person and speak the truth in love. And I think the reason is, here's my guess. We have this weird thing and it's in all of us where what we really want is for people to like us. Like that's really our goal. We want people to like us more than we want to help them live right. So our our desire for people to like us trumps the truth we should be sharing with them. And so for the most part, we kind of keep quiet and uh, we dance around the subject. So it's been said, we'd rather be killed by compliments than saved by criticism. If you think about your life, I would say for most of us, that's the truth. Compliment me. Tell me I'm great, even if I'm not, because it makes me feel good in that moment. But it didn't really help me. And I figured this out really early at Edgewater, that that was going to happen. So early on, I would grab people for lunch, usually on Tuesday, and we'd sit down for lunch. And this happened to me probably five times in a row. And I stopped asking the question, but I'd sit down at lunch. I'd be like, Hey, how you doing? And I get into this person. They'd be like, man, I loved Sunday's message. And at that point, I was really just trying to figure out, like, how do you do this? And so I, I, I wasn't trying to fish for anything. I just wanna know, well, what on Sunday did I do well? Cause I know I did some stuff dumb. So what on Sunday did I do well? And I'd say, well, what, what did you actually like on Sunday? And there was just like panic. Um, yeah, sun, I know it was really good. Let me think here. I just, I I, mm, I, I, I'll get back to you on that one. I'm like, you're a liar like Jacob, aren't you? You're a deceiver. <laughs> because we want just to, everything's good. But what we really need to do is when we see an Esau ready to make even a dumber choice, we say, hey, bro, let's grab coffee. And we speak to truth in love. The Proverbs, Proverbs 27, four says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy a true friend will actually tell you the truth. An enemy will not. Value the person in your life and receive it from him. Thank you, or from her. Thank you, I'm gonna pray about that. Thank you for coming to me and telling me that. If you are that kind of person, what you'll find is there'll be more friends who will help you and shape you in a godly way. So you don't do what Esau does here and make things a lot worse. So Esau now is kind of, His story fades off and now it focuses in on Jacob. So verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and he came to a certain place. It's a very interesting Hebrew word. It usually means like a sacred place. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night, nighttime, because the sun had set. Notice how it slows down right now. Whenever a text does this, like it just goes, right? It was night, but more than that, the sun had set, right? So it's, it's telling you, it's a way that the Bible is written that should force you to be like, put the brakes on right now. It's slowing down. I need to slow down. Something important is about to take place. So it's one of those markers, certain place, night, sunset, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and like, notice how slow that is. It's not just, hey, Jacob fell asleep in a spot, right? Really slow. This is a secret to the Bible. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it, or I think stood beside him and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely Yahweh is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. I say right here is God's nature. You want a glimpse into the nature of God, you get it right here. So we looked at this on Sunday. I'll just kind of clean up some stuff. He is sent by his dad on a 550 mile trek, He's only 60 miles into the track when he comes right here to this little place. So he's in for a very long camping trip, right? Esau would have loved this. PCT, let's do it. Let's go from Mexico to Canada. Yeah, right? I already have my nickname. It's Sasquatch. I'm hairy. It's Perfect. But Jacob, this is a nightmare, man. He wanted the mall, and now he's on this 550 mile camping trip. He's just like, oh, this is such a bummer. You're starting to see that there are real consequences to his actions. And I, I have this saying Sin has a brilliant marketing department, but its product always stinks, it's sugared poison. So now Jacob's beginning to sample that. He's all alone. He's penniless. His head is on a stone. It's a bummer. He's feeling the problems. All right? So here's what we see. We see this ladder. The word ladder here, it's a very hard word to translate because here's what it is. I'm going to give you a very fancy word. It's a legomenon. That's a fancy word. That means it appears one time in the Bible. Now, why can't we just have a word that says it's once in the Bible instead of hop hox legomenon? Because it makes me sound very smart. And that's why I use it. (laughs) So because of that, when when a word is only used one time in the Bible, it's very hard to get context and figure out what it means. So ladder, no one knows what it means. It's something. We're unsure. Ladder seems like the best stair. No one knows. It's this one time used term. So it's got this thing, But what do you see on this ladder, right? Angels ascending and descending on it. It's busy. It's like 199 at 5 p.m., right? Just backed up, busy. What is this supposed to tell you and me? God's at work. God is not a deist. Deism was this idea hatched in the 17th century that God took the world and he wound it up like a clock and then just said, okay, you're on your own. This is telling us, no, God is active. He is up and down this ladder. He is at work all the time in our world. And so people will say to me sometimes, Matt, can you believe how bad the world is? My answer, I can't believe it's not worse. I can't believe we're not Mad Max. I can't believe we're not Book of Eli. I can't believe we're not a really bad Stephen King movie. I can't believe we're not that. Like what's keeping it from being that? God's action. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse seven says that. It says that there's this lawless man that's at work right now, but it says there, he, he, there's a he that's restraining him right now. Like there is way more evil that could be happening, except for there's a he that's restraining him. I believe that he is God's spirit in you and me. That we are, if you would, we are the people that have our fingers in the dam that's holding back untold evil by our gospel witness, by sharing Jesus with people, by not being overcome of evil, but overcoming evil with good. That's what we have that privilege. So if you have an unbelieving neighbor who wants to complain about how bad things are, just tell him. just be so glad I'm your neighbor because it could be a lot worse for you. (laughs) I'm restraining evil in our community, okay? That's what I'm doing. And we're just supposed to see like God's at work. And as a believer, I love hearing the testimony of God being at work. In your workplace, in your home, in your life, in your family. I love missions because somehow on the mission field, It's like God expands his work in your life. You see God in a whole fresh new way. Like, man, I just saw God working in Grants Pass. He's working here and there. Ah, I love missions because it keeps expanding how active God is, how this ladder is just packed. It's interstate five. God is at work. Please know that. Please know that and share it. There's something special about when believers share the work of God in their life. That's the first thing to notice. Second thing. In verse 17, this should ring a little bit of a bell if you've traveled through Genesis with us. Because Jacob's like, this is none other than the house of God. Beth El. Beth means house. Bet, and then El is the shortened Elohim. House of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Does that ring any bells with you guys? It should. Because in Genesis 11, the end of how God dealt with the nations was a tower that was called Babel. Babel literally means gate of God. So it's the two words, if you would cram together. This is actually the gate of God. So Babel is every world's religion. It's trying to create a house for God and a stairway up that you can get to God. That's every religion. Every religion is man's attempt to go up to God. What steps do I need to take so that God sees me and is impressed with me and then gives his love to me? That's every religion. Islam has the five pillars, visit Mecca, pray five times, fast at Ramadan, give alms. Buddhism has their eightfold path to nirvana. Hinduism has the sacred cows and the washings and the bathings and the offerings. They all have their steps to get to God. But this text is telling us something very different because this house of God, this gate of heaven doesn't have anyone going up. What does it have? God coming down. That's why I believe verse 13 has to be translated and God stood beside Jacob. It's not Jacob trying to get up to God or impress God. In fact, Jacob is a terrible loser right at this point. It's God saying, I'm coming down to you. And if you know your Bible, in John chapter one, Jesus to Nathanael actually says, I'm that ladder. He quotes this little text and says, it's me. I believe that the person standing next to Jacob was none other than the second person of the Trinity, the son of God. Standing by Jacob, I'm the ladder. I am Emmanuel. And Jacob is learning something about God, that God's grace will outrun his rebellion. And when you and I learn that as well, God becomes so much bigger to us. that His grace will outrun my rebellion. And that Jesus is the ladder. He's the bridge between heaven and earth. And when Jesus was crucified, I think it looked like a bridge. He was suspended, if you would, between heaven and between earth. And he is the only ladder that gets you and me back to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one because there's only one ladder. There's not a lot of ladders, there's one ladder. And I think it's the reason why it's a hop hox, the Gomanon, because there's only one, and it's Jesus. It's a brilliant, brilliant thing. Thirdly, notice the promise. It's exactly what Jacob needed. He's all alone. So what does God promise? I'll be with you, right? He's defenseless. There's bad people around. So what does God promise? I'll keep you. I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you. I'll keep you. And then he's penniless, no inheritance. So what does God promise? All the land that you see, I'm giving it to you. I'll give you the inheritance. I love that. Everything... Jacob needed, was met by Yahweh, the second member of the Trinity, standing right next to him. Is that not the New Testament? I'll be with you even to the end of this age. Don't worry, I'm going to keep you. You're in my hand. No man can snatch you out. And I've got an inheritance for you. You're going to inherit the new kingdom. You're going to be kings and queens. This is such... So it's just so brilliant to me. Every promise of God meets the believer in the ladder of Jesus Christ. That is New Testament theology. And I think you see it right here with God, the son standing next to Jacob at this ladder. Just amazing to me. Number four, it's a surprise. Verse 16, surely Yahweh is in this place and I did not Know it, the last time, the last place, the last thing Jacob ever expected in his life after he'd lied and deceived and been sent away by his dad penniless was for God to show up. I talked to so many people that's in the last place they ever expect that God shows up. Sickness, sin, bad time, stumble, dark night. It's a dark night, verse 11. It's when you least expect God to come. When you think I don't deserve God to come, that's when he shows up. I want you to take just a minute and I want you to think of the worst fear you have. What's your worst fear right now? Death? Disease? Alzheimer's? Your kids, how they're gonna turn out? Your marriage, maybe a spouse abandoning you. What, what is your absolute worst fear? And I, hear, I want you to hear the promise God makes to you. I'll be with you and I will keep you and I will give you an inheritance. That's the gospel. And that's what's told right here to Jacob. God appears when we least expect it. I think we're a lot like Gehazi, Gehazi is the servant of Elisha, who when the Syrians come to kill Elisha in Second Kings chapter 6, Gehazi, the servant, wakes up in the morning, goes out to get the paper. He looks up. There's a massive army out there with bows, taunt, ready to kill him. Shuts the door. He's like, oh no. Runs back, finds Elisha, who's sipping some black tea, kicking back, reading his Bible. PG tips, of course. Sitting there, and he's like, dude, the Syrians are here. They're going to kill us. And Elisha's like, hey, don't worry about it. What do you mean don't worry about it? There's more with us than are with them. What? One, two. Goes out counts. One, two, three, four, right? There's 10,000. Are you kidding me? Two of us, 10,000. Elisha, did you flunk math? Because listen, you can't count. And what does Elisha do? God opened his eyes. And then uh, Gehazi saw in all the mountains around the Fiery chariots of the army of God. And he ran out the front door and just went, na 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 na. <laughs> okay, that's what you can do to your greatest fear. Na 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 na. God's with me, and he will keep me, and I have an inheritance that's incorruptible, set aside, that moth and rust and thieves cannot touch. That's what you and I get to do as well. That's why throughout the Bible, the number one command is what? Don't be afraid almost always followed by, because I'm with you. I am the Emmanuel. I'm the one that stands beside you. You have nothing to be afraid of. Brilliant. Verse 18, I call this the bargain. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head and set it for a pillar and poured oil on it. He called the name of that place Bethel. Bet means house, El is the short Elohim, God, Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear (laughs) so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then Yahweh shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you have given me, I will give a full 10th to you. (laughs) It's the bargain. Notice the if then. Okay, God, if you do these things for me, then I'll do this for you. He's still not quite there, right? He's getting a little big for his britches. God, I know you need me on your team. So here's what it's going to take to get me. I need some food. I need some clothing. I need, right? So funny. It will take another 20 years of him meeting a guy who's just as bad as him and then wrestling with God at a river before he learns to submit to God. And I actually like that because God is in the business of calling sinners, not finished saints. And God is okay with a reclamation project. He's okay with the sign that says construction ahead. It's going to be a bumpy road. There's construction ahead and God's okay with that. Jacob, I know what I got into with you. I understand it. I understand that I'm in for the long haul. There's going to be 20 years before you even learn what submission means. And I'm okay with that because I'm in this for the long haul. I love that. It's so awesome. But you do see something. It's the first sign that Jacob is moving in the right direction. He takes oil. Oil would have been the most precious thing that Jacob owns right now. You can cook with it. You could trade with it. It was his one thing that was of value. And what does he do with it? He offers it in worship to God. He takes this little baby step forward. And I love that. In seminary, I had to answer a bunch of questions. It was this, it's called integrated theology. It's one of the last theology classes you take. And they just fire, I had to answer 40 questions essentially. And one of the questions was this. It was, if a person in your church came to you and said, an angel showed up to me and talked to me last night, how would you respond? And so I did the theology side of it. And then I said, for me, I would wait and see. Because whenever an angel or God shows up to a person, there's always change in their life an angel shows up to Hagar and she is running away, heading the wrong direction and she turns around and goes home, right? Gideon, an angel shows up to him, the weakest just wimp of a dude and he turns into this mighty man of God. An angel shows up to Joseph when he's ready to get rid of Mary because she's pregnant, give her a, a divorce. She's gonna be sent away into either prostitution or death. An angel shows up and Joseph changes his mind and marries her, and adopts Jesus, right? You always see change when an angel shows up. And here's the same thing. You see a change in Jacob. The schemer, the conniver, the taker, for the first time in his life, is a giver. And he actually pledges more. God, I'll give you 10% of everything you give me. So isn't that a funny statement? All that you give me, I'll give you 10%. Now let me ask you a question. How would Jacob give Yahweh 10%? There wasn't a basket passed around. That. How in the world do you tithe to God like Jacob promised to tithe to God? Do you know how? You'd make a pile of it and you'd set it on fire. That's how you would do it. It was, this is yours. I'm setting it on fire. I think that's really Interesting. Because very often, here's what I can do. When I give to something or an organization, I want to know how you're going to spend that. What are you going to do with that? Instead of saying, you know what? I'm just trusting God with this. Do what you're going to do with it. I've obeyed what God told me to do. Now, I'm not saying be stupid about who you give to, but I think there is a balance there because the tithe that Jacob would offer would just be burned. Fascinating. What a great chapter, isn't it? One of my favorites. So Sunday, if you were here, I had a lot of people say, I really love that message. (laughs) Was it deep? No, right? It's the simplest message ever. And it's that God pursues you like the best father you could ever imagine. And I'll tell you, I didn't have to go in the Hebrew or the Greek or any of those things, the simplest messages of the Bible are the best. And any one of you can share that with people. No matter, you don't need to have a degree. You can say, God pursues you like the best dad you could ever imagine. And that's what you see in the Bible. Adam and Eve, Cain, Jacob, me. It's brilliant. It's the best message. That's the message. And when we get all tangled, I get tangled up sometimes in, in theological talk with people. I always come back to this message. Simple. God's the best dad you could ever imagine. And he's pursuing you because he loves you. And we get to partake of that this evening in communion. Remembering Jesus is the ladder. That Jesus demonstrates God. If you have any question about what God's like, guess what you do? You look at Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, he is the express image of the father. John chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That the pursuit of you and me climaxed by God not killing me as his enemy, but God dying for me to make me his friend. It's brilliant. So Jesus, thank you that you are the latter. And I don't have to ascend up it, but you come down beside me and you guide me and you're with me and you keep me and you promise me an inheritance. That's the good news. And I pray for any in here that, that have an overwhelming fear. I pray that the promises that you made to Jacob which are the same promises that you make to every believer in Jesus, that we would cling to those promises today, that you're gonna be with us, that you will keep us, and that we have an inheritance. I pray as we eat and as we drink of you this evening, that we would eat and drink of great confidence in your power, that we would focus on you, not ourselves. So may, Lord, each of us walk out of this building tonight more firmly established in your power, in your spirit, in your work than we ever have been before. That you came down to us to bring us back to yourself. That's the good news. Amen.